Hi, I'm Dave. And I'm Paul. And we're going to challenge you to transform your financial future through the principles of the most profitable business in the world, banking. We believe everyone should be involved in two businesses, the business that you're in and the banking business. Everyday people can replicate what bankers have been doing for centuries to leverage capital and build wealth through private lending. Join us as we uncover the truths about money, expose lies and myths, and flip conventional financial advice on its head. Here we go. All right, Paul, what's going on, man? Uh, I'm recently returned from Tennessee again. I see you're wearing your Tennessee quarter zip. I am. I am. Yeah. Um, yep. Spent uh, spent the weekend there, or Friday, Saturday, and came back Sunday. Spent 14 hours on Saturday picking out everything for the house. 14 hours. 14 hours straight. You know, we ate. We ate out. We had five guys for lunch. Awesome. And then we had McAllister's Deli for dinner. And were you uh, were you drinking while you were picking all this stuff out? A little bit. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see how it turns out when it's during put the, all during together. The day. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's gonna look awesome. <laughs> yeah, you were just showing me the picture of the pool. That looks amazing. I can't wait to for you to fly all of your clients and your business partner down for the house opening. So just remember <laughs> that Paul's flying you all down for the house warming if you're a client. Something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Yeah, so you were out of town. I was out. I just got back from Texas. I was there for the weekend for a a real estate investor, like a multifamily conference. Um, not even specifically for the real estate portion of it. I was just, I had a buddy down there who wanted me to meet a lot of his network because um, these people need infinite banking. They just don't realize it. So I uh, took some copies of the book that I, I put together, like a little handbook that I self-published on Amazon called infinite banking for real estate investors. Um, handed some of those out, had a lot of conversations about it. And uh, I expect to have several meetings going forward about it because it's a great fit for syndicators and anybody trying to save and accumulate capital in order to then invest in whatever they want in syndication in this example. So it was pretty fun, man. You know who I met while I was there? And I actually had dinner with him and spent I mean, a couple hours just in conversation with the guy. Um, I you, you don't play video games, just like I don't play video games, right? But Call of Duty? I play a little, a little bit. But Have not, you ever, do you really. play any Call of Duty? Yeah, I like Call of Duty. I don't you know the general. I haven't played it in forever, but. The gen General Shepard in Call of Duty? Oh, gosh, I don't know it that well. Is yeah, it one of the it, characters I mean, you can be or whatever? Well, it's, I don't know, one of the main characters. It might be one of the new versions of Call of Duty. I don't play it, so I didn't know. I recognized him from other movies and TV shows I watched, but uh, he, it was General Shepard from Call of Duty and uh, Glenn Morshower. Uh, he played, uh, did you watch 24? The the first I few did. seasons, he was Aaron, the Secret Service agent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, dude, it's so interesting, man. I mean, just the, the conversation is really deep, really introspective, and asks really good questions. And just a fun guy. He teaches acting now, and he teaches people, probably business professionals who want to present on stage and, and just have more confidence and better public Very speaking. Cool. But it was fascinating. It was a lot of fun. Um, and met some of his friends, and yeah, we had a good time. But yeah, great time. Good to be home. I do not like being away from home, really anymore well that's but, good that's a good thing yeah it is it's nice being at home kind of a homebody these days 
But well, all right, man. Cool. So we had a question come in. You wanted to review that real quick? Oh yeah, I was just looking up Aaron Pierce. Yeah, I know he he's either a guy that plays a, like a government official, Secret Service, or something. No, you're right. Or he's like he was in Air Force One, and he gets killed because I mean every Secret Service agent in that movie at the beginning of the plane they get yeah. killed, right? You know, automatic fire in the middle of an airplane. You know, yeah, he's either nothing decompresses. You know, <laughs> nothing right. hits a window. Yeah, or goes through. <laughs> yeah it makes sense. <laughs> no, he's he's right. He's he said. Him more than any other actor, past or present, has appeared on film in uniform more than anybody else in history. Yeah, he's in and Transformers. I, yeah, he's always in uniform. Yeah. Um, and I told him he was in Black Hawk Down, and he played. Yep, he played one of the guys, Colonel in the Tom, that was... one of those guys. Yeah. And he said that that Colonel, the real life guy, was usually within you know five yards of him, and he made sure. And I told him I really appreciated this. When he does military movies, he wants to get it right because you know we watch military movies and they're a joke, right? The, their clothes, the way they wear their uniform, the way they salute, the way they talk to one another—it's a joke. Yeah. Um, but he's very intent on getting it right, so I, I appreciated that. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, Black Hawk Down was one of the ones that got it right. They got it right. Yeah. 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 All right, man. Well, cool. Moving on. So, what is that question? Do you have it pulled up? I do. We have a question that came in today, actually, from Will C. <clears throat> and Will writes, Hello, I am wondering if you guys could cover the following topic on your show. My financial advisor has funded me into an accelerator IUL policy for the last five years. And it's accelerated with an like XCL. Sounds an fancy. Errator. Er Sounds so that awesome. Must be just sounds <laughs> sounds amazing. Get me sounds one incredible. of those. Um, and let's see. Uh, so for the last five years. And then he says, I got into IBC against his approval, surprise, in this past year by researching Nelson's work on my own. I funded my own IBC policy. We'll talk about that. This year. And I am now capped on death benefit between the two. I have come to learn from Nelson how inefficient IUL policies are. I am now strongly considering surrendering the whole I, the the whole IUL policy to transfer the premium funds of of the last five years. I'm assuming he means the the cash accounts values is, is right. what I'm assuming. Yeah, the he cash means. accounts and then value, right? Redirect premium to whole life. Yeah. Um, into new dividend paying whole life policies. Could you give advice on that? And what process would you go about doing so if in my shoes? Also, I love the show. Been listening since the summer. Thank you for considering Will. Will, first of all, thanks for listening. That's a great, a great question. And he's got some options, doesn't he, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. And this could be a full episode, or maybe it will be. Um, but it, a big picture, what Will got into an IUL he's got a little buyer's remorse now five years later after learning about infinite banking concept and the reasons why Nelson and IBC practitioners promote whole life versus IUL. Um, and now he's wondering, do I have any options with this? And yeah, the answer is yes. Um, I don't know your specific policy. I don't know anything about it. Um, so we're just speaking generalities here, but you have some options of surrendering it. There's going to be some surrender charges. Uh, because there usually is in the first 10 years of those policies. Um, 
or you could potentially do a 1035 exchange, which is just moving that cash value from one policy into a, a like asset, which would be a whole life insurance policy. So there's, there's that. Um, it's kind of, you know, you're, you're going to lose something, right? Cause you probably haven't hit the break even point, not even close yet. So not, not with that thing. Yeah. But I would, I tend to look at that more as a sunk cost, man. I either take the loss now or I take the loss later on after I paid in for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. The, the longer will that you let it go, the worse the pending disaster will ultimately be. Uh, kind of like the national get, debt. Right. It's, uh, it's much worse than the national debt. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I think, I think, I think you're in the right mindset. You know, you, you've, you've now, uh, you know, gained some, some clarity by acquiring knowledge. And, you know, for the folks watching on YouTube, I'm going to hold up Building Your Warehouse of Wealth, Nelson's second book. In chapter nine on page 73, he says, my thoughts on universal life, variable life, and equity index universal life, now just called index universal life. So it's not appropriate for IBC. Will, you already, you, you know that now. Um, but yeah, you definitely have options. So um, maybe we do a more in-depth episode on that, Dave, down the road. But um, yeah, IULs, any type of universal life is not an appropriate product for implementing IBC. Correct. And we, you know, shoot, I have to look back at that episode. I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll tag it in the, in the show notes, but we did a complete episode on you know, IUL versus whole life for the purposes of IBC. And I believe that was um, pretty early on, but um, we'll find it for you and throw it in the, the show notes. Yeah, right on. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, so something else we wanted to talk about. Okay. That was episode 29. Universal life versus whole life for the purposes of IBC. Episode 29. There you go. Um, <clears throat> all right. Transitioning. So today we realized one of the biggest questions we always have with new prospects is, hey, how much should I be paying in premium? And thankfully, it's that much with most people because they come in with some education as opposed to people who come in with no education say, how much do I have to pay in premium? Hmm. At least we moved on to that next level of how much should I be paying in premium? Ultimately, yeah. we, want, we want to get to what? We want to get them to ask what question? How much can I pay? How much can I pay? pay? So it's an evolution. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's a common question. And I realized after going back through 93 episodes now, we don't have one episode solely dedicated to how much should I pay in premium? So let's uh let's just make this a whole episode dedicated to that and and knock this question out. So we always have something to refer people back to and and listen to this a couple times if you're trying to decide how much to pay in premium. Um, and then you got to think on it. So uh, I'll let you start it off. We've got you know lots to say about this, but go ahead and tell me where where you would start, Paul. Yeah, I'm looking at our notes. Um, something to think about, and I'm going to start before we go to our first bullet here, is how much can you pay can be restricted by an underwriter who's evaluating your human life value and your ability to pay premium. So now, if you're making 
a certain level of income can and, it, and that number is generally 15%, isn't it, Dave? That's kind of like their starting percentage of income where an underwriter will be like, okay, that's where we'll that's the I, most I'd say that's if you make the average American yes. salary. But right. I think most people we work with make make plenty more than that. They they do. They do. And yeah. some of you listening know that you're probably paying at least 15%, if not more, of your, you know, annual salary in as as premium. So, but generally speaking, that's what they're gonna look at, 15%. Um, and then again, depending on your income, we can adjust from there. Uh so, but fundamentally, how much premium you're gonna pay is you know, it depends. You're just gonna start where you're at. If your salary this year is at a certain level and has been over the last few years. You know your cash flows better than anybody. You know what what is going to a savings account or what is going to an investment account or wherever it's going. You know what's left over all after all of your obligations are, have been met. So based on that, that's kind of probably the starting point of our discussion of what the premium is going to be. Yeah, but that's that's just the starting point because as you get more into it, um, and Paul and I look at, at your cash flow situation and where money is leaving your hands. A lot of times we'll have conversations with people and they'll discover through their own conversation or listening to other podcast episodes like, oh man, actually I'm sending money over there every month when really I should send it here first. And then I can use it later when I need to. Um, and send it over there because then at that point you've captured that permanently inside this asset so it'll be compounding uninterrupted for you until the, the day you graduate right so there's yeah, that's right you can always find typically if you have more eyes looking at it with you especially with experience from an ibc practitioner you can find you can find money right yeah yeah no doubt uh, i always tell people when they enter the process you know the more the more honest you are about your finances with me, the more I can help. True. The more I can see. Um, and I'll see, and again, like you said, we'll see things that you just don't see. Yeah. Because if you just stopped where you initially said, hey, look at what's left over at the end of the month, your, your disposable income, if you will, uh, or discretionary income, then you're probably going to make the number one mistake or have the biggest regret that that the majority of people who start their first policy have which is it went too small yeah and then all of a sudden you're like i should have gone bigger and then you come back for a second policy which is great this shouldn't be just one policy it should be a series of policies like currently i have like 11 policies and i'm sure next year i'll be adding at least one more for myself maybe two so i mean why not that's right. Yeah, that, that's very common, right? People, they're not at the how much can I pay level yet. Uh, and that's rare. Um, I'll always point out to people that and I've had a couple in the in the several hundred, right, that have been like, I want to pay more. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, and that's great. But sometimes yeah. you have to kind of like, all right, just slow your roll, man. Like, pump the brakes. Pump the brakes. That's, yeah. that's good. But, you know, um, so anyway. Yeah, but it's going to happen. Natural expansion. Yeah. And you can actually pay, depending on your income, up to upwards of 30% of your income that, that can get past the underwriters. If you want to pay more than that, that can happen too. 
you just have to, um, there's some certainly legal and ethical ways of sidestepping that underwriting requirement. Yeah. And it's not a, it's not a hard requirement, right? There's always exceptions. No, nope. yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, some people might be cash heavy, so an underwriter sees like the first year annual outlay of premium, and it's an extremely high number beyond thirty percent of someone's income. And of course, we have to answer the question quite simply, but they have to ask it, and that's fine. Like, no, this this person has existing liquidity. Here's their financial statement. They have yeah. you know this much money sitting in a savings account or a CD or brokerage account, brokerage or something account that they're going to pull from every year. Yeah, that that's right. So, you know, as long as it can be explained away and it makes sense and it makes sense to us and it makes sense to you, it's generally not a problem. Yep, absolutely. So <clears throat> I've uh, always said, and I, I can't even remember who I got this from or if it was a, a combination of several mentors, like your premium should fit two requirements, manageable and meaningful. So what does manageable mean to you, Paul? So if I had to define that, I would say that's something I know I can handle every month, every year for the foreseeable future or in perpetuity, like I know I can do it. So if it's you know $10,000 a year, yep, I know I can absolutely do that every single year for the rest of my life. That yeah. would be, that's probably manageable to me, I think. Right. Barring any like, what do they call it? Force majeure, like act of God that that just completely... You know, right, destroys whatever situation you thought you were going to have. Not that that would really be an act of God, but that's what they call it. Um, yeah, exactly. So you got it. Shouldn't cause you any stress whatsoever. Yep, that manageable number. That's right. Now, five hundred dollars a month. People are like, oh, I could do five hundred a month. I'm like, okay, cool. That's manageable, I'm sure. But is it meaningful? Is it meaningful? to fund $6,000 a year in a premium. Well, it depends. It depends on where you're at right now. Maybe for somebody making 30,000 a year, yeah, that's meaningful. Yes. Um, but for somebody making $150,000 a year, no, you're not that's not meaningful. Like that's correct. what's it going to do for you? What are you trying to are you really trying to replace your banking system or are you just trying to like dip your toe in and have, you know, a little slice of your portfolio be permanent life insurance and, and guaranteed cash value. Yeah. And that's where the level of understanding of IBC comes in, knowing, knowing the entire problem set, which most people will, will, will maybe grasp some of the problem. Well, I'm bleeding interest to other people's banks for my entire lifetime. Okay. Uh, but they don't take that next step and think, well, how do I address, what is the best way for me to address that? Well, it's, it's premium, meaningful premium. Right. Meaningful. So also to me, meaningful, like we said, manageable is like, oh, I'm comfortable. Yeah. I, it doesn't make me, I, I don't break any sweat with that number, right? I'm not going to lose any sleep. Meaningful, on the other hand, should be a challenging number that makes you slightly uneasy. That's the only way I can explain it. Like if you want to relate it, like get your nervous system working for you. Think of a number and your nervous system reacts and goes, Ooh, you pucker a little bit. Right. But not too much. Just a little bit. Yeah, just just a little bit. Yeah. It's uh, you know, not quite sweaty wads of dripping wet cash, <laughs> but but close. 
Yeah. Yeah. So it should make you slightly uncomfortable because, and why is that okay? Like, I think for one reason, that's where you should think because then you're ensuring that you're not going to go too small. You're not going to create something that's so insignificant that really you may not even see the point if you're doing, like I said, 6,000 a year, but you make 150,000 at the end of a couple of years, you're going to be like, oh, shoot, I don't have very much. Like, yeah, I've got some cash value, but what am I going to do with that? Nothing I want to do. Like, it's not yeah, meaningful. Maybe finance a, a vacation maybe or something. Maybe, right? Take the kids to Disneyland. Yeah. So, but if if you use that number that makes you slightly uncomfortable, you know that right there is a good test for okay, that's a, that's a meaningful number and it's going to do something sizable for me in the future. I'm going to have access to a large pool of capital for emergencies and for opportunities. And then it's time, you know, once you get that going, uh, have you ever had a client stop paying a premium because they just couldn't make the payment anymore? They just let the policy go? Yeah. You have? Yeah, just once. But once, one client out of, couple hundred almost. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never had a client do that. Like they've always made the premium. I've had one client get very close to letting it go. And luckily he reached out to me and he's like, I don't know if I can make this happen. And we talked about it and we, we created a plan. But, um, if you understand that, but that's where the education comes in because our clients understand what they're getting into in the first place. And they see the long game. They see the importance of making that payment. And, Hey, even if you have to drop down to the minimum payment, which is oftentimes going to be less than half of your total right. premium, you can do that. Just keep the policy going and then you rebound and you you start funding it fully, you know, when things turn around for you. Because we're all going to have those those years in life when maybe things get lean for a year or two. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunate because they especially if you know our clients see the value and it's and the discussion occurs, hey, there's gotta be if there's nothing else that can be cut, okay. But there's got to be. Yeah. There has to be. You right. know, Let I me was, see your credit card statement. Like, yeah. are you brave so, enough to show me that? <laughs> so I was, I was talking to somebody last week, and, um, and and it just came up like, it was talking about the government furlough, and that's upcoming again, uh, that stopgap measures expiring. But anyway, mm -hmm. uh, some folks are like, you know, they get worried. And I was like, well, you're going to, you know, these are civilian employees. You're going to get paid. It's like a paid vacation, but it's, you know, paid once once Later. the budget is passed or, or yeah, whatever. They're always going to back um, pay you. Yeah, and they get the back pay, right? Uh, so it really is like a paid vacation, but what they're worried about is that is that gap. Yeah. And this particular person, you know, I go outside, I'm walking out of the building, and and there's his, you know, $50,000 BMW. Mm -hmm. And I was like... Life's not that bad. I mean, yeah, yeah. Just where you, where's your money going? Yep, Parkinson's law. So obviously he has not conquered Parkinson's law, no. where expenses rise to meet your income. If you can conquer no. that, you're going to be ahead of your peers. That's right. And I and I'm willing to bet if I did the um, the basic calculation of age times income divided by ten, his net worth would be way lower than that. Okay. Because I know yeah. how much he makes. So I take that. Much, yeah. say, talk through that equation. Because that's probably new yeah, to so, a lot of people. 
Yeah, so years ago, I read this book, The Millionaire Next Door. It's somewhere up there. Um, maybe it's down on this shelf. But they had a, what did they call it? They called it a paw, like a something acquirer of wealth. I don't know, it was prodigi- I can't remember the word they used. But anyway, it was somebody that had done okay. And the calculation was basically, hey, right now, sit there, take your age, what's your income, and divide that by 10. And that should be your bottom line net worth currently. Assets minus liabilities, right? Um, okay. Yeah. Interesting. And if you're exceeding that, great. I mean, that's but that should be your baseline. If it's not, we need to kind of look in the mirror. Like, what have we been doing? And I guess if you're 21 years old, okay, that, that you know probably doesn't make yeah. any sense. But but once you hit your 30s and 40s and beyond, it's it's certainly a, a relevant calculation to just kind of see where you're at. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So now you got something to shoot for. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Not that net worth is the end all be all. I think cash flow is more important than net worth. Yes. But w- without, yeah, but they should, your net worth should be rising every year. If yes. it's not, you're probably spending more than, than you're taking in. Yep. That's right. And I've, I've told my kids, you know, we're getting a little off topic, but just, you know, just due to inflation, you're going to have to save 25% of your income starting as soon as you start laboring for a wage. Yeah, and and save it before you start investing it for cash flow. That's right. Like you got to have, yeah, you got to capitalize first. And then, yeah, now we're getting off topic. So let's get, let's get back on topic, but those are all good things. Um, Yeah. So here's something to realize. So I think we we talked manageable and meaningful and how that should feel uh, for both of those. And then we designed the policy to fit in between that. Right, so you have a floor and a ceiling, and we'll design yep. it based around those two numbers to fit your situation. That's the way it should be done. Uh, I'm never going to allow anybody to do more than what I would actually recommend. Like I rec, I think you're capable of doing this based on everything I know about your financial situation. So here's my, I recommend, I recommend sixty thousand a year, and they're like, nope, I want to do ninety. Like, ah, I can't really recommend that for you. Like, uh, I I love the the aggressiveness and the ambition. But let's do this one because guess what? This doesn't have to be your last policy. In fact, in your mind, this should, you should say, I'm not getting a policy. I'm getting my first policy. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, it's weird to people to hear us say that in some cases, not, not necessarily our clients or our listeners, but just like, why do you, but that question comes up a lot with new, with new folks. Like, why do you own so many policies? And you have to kind of go through, um, why? Uh, you know, as my income rises and I need a place to put that income, well, it's a natural expansion of my system, right? Right. And Nelson says that. He teaches, if we've read the book, he tells us that. This is to be a system of policies. But I love that you said a natural expansion of my system, not an artificial expansion through through f- premium financed and laddering and all this other BS, <laughs> like natural expansion. Do it Go get a responsibly. <laughs> Yeah, go get it, it, get a HELOC, dump it all in a policy and and yeah, like natural, <laughs> like just like a, a business. If your business scales too quickly, you're probably going to fail because you can't keep up with demand and then demand stops because you can't keep up with demand. So natural expansion is very key. Yes. And I, I heard Ryan and James, I listened to one of their episodes today and it was just kind of a, you know, you, you have to have... That premium, right, is a dedicated cash flow. 
and it needs to be from whatever you're whatever you're into. If, if it's your business income, great. If it's your W-2 income, great. If it's 1099 income, great. But it's something that you can rely on that's that you're comfortable with, that is you know it's going to be there year after year after year after year. But it's a dedicated cash flow. Um, so hopefully that answers some questions. We don't do we don't do laddering, we don't do premium finance. That's not that's not what we're into. Um, it has to be a very specific case, I would say that. Yeah. Okay. So let's let's move on to the next evolution of the question. Okay, now I have my premium decided. Who do I insure first? Oh, like gosh. I've got I've got a wife and and seven kids. Who do I insure? Yeah. Cause the question comes up, hey, my wife's healthier. Should I get the policy on her first? And I was like, well, no. So the answer is, and I think we agree on this, Dave, is the primary main or main breadwinner. That is the first person to be underwritten. And that's where the bulk of the premium um, should be paid. It's kind of like you have two, you own two cars. One's a BMW, one's a Toyota Corolla. Uh, Same year. Which one do you want more insurance coverage on? The right. the one that's going to be a bigger financial impact if something happens to it. Yep. You want you want the right of amount of insurance on those two items. The correct amount. Yeah. Yes. And, and you can't be overinsured. You can certainly be underinsured. Um. So perfect. Yeah. So the breadwinner and that makes that that makes common sense. I think that tracks with most people. That yeah, the person who makes the most money for the family should be the first to be insured if you can't do both at the same time and should have more insurance than anybody in the family. Uh, and in fact, they probably have to have more insurance than anybody in the family. Um, yeah, no. Oh yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Um, Cause again, underwriting guidelines, right, Dave, there's, there's a limited amount that a non um, non-working spouse can actually have. Right. Yep. So, after the breadwinner, we go to the spouse, either the non-working spouse, maybe stay at home, or they just don't make as much money, right? So because they're still, even if, say in my situation, I work, my wife doesn't outside the home, she's managing the household. Okay, she may not be pulling in an active income, but imagine how much it's going to cost me financially, not, not to mention emotionally, if God forbid, she graduates unexpectedly. Right, that's a huge financial burden on top yes. of a huge emotional burden. Yes. So yeah. you need it, that that spouse needs life insurance. Yep. How many how many times have we had that conversation, Dave, with with clients? Um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, and if there's not enough cash flow, folks, to you know, we want as much whole life um, premium paid and whole life death benefit because it's permanent death benefit. However. We want that spouse at least, you know, maybe we do a 20-year convertible term as a gap measure to get us over mm-hmm. that hump until our, our, our income rises, we can pay more premium. Um, but yeah, certainly, just because this, there's a non-working spouse, they have tremendous value, obviously, um, for those reasons that you just stated. Uh, just, you know, daycare costs and transportation, all the all the things that occur. Yeah. Forget the emotional stuff. I mean, that's, you know, it's, yes, you're your time just increased dramatically, you know, dedicating time to, to those things that Dave can't cook folks can boil water maybe, but man, I learned how to cook a little bit. I I grill, you give me the grill. I'm good. I'll I'll do any of that. You can sous vide. Hannah does everything else. I can, I can sous vide. 
like a champ. <laughs> there you go. Put it in the water, 125 degrees, one hour, done. Mm, medium rare, huh? Mm -hmm. Yummy. Yeah. yeah so, maybe. yeah. So I, I totally agree. And, and the convertible term, so I'm working with a really smart couple right now. The husband's a pilot. The wife um, has a has a job right now that she's planning, I think, on vacating when she has another kid. Because then the cost of child care for multiple kids yes. versus work, it just doesn't make any financial sense, right? You might as well just right. stay home and take care of the kids yourself. Yep. Um, so she's going to get a convertible term policy because we're going to go big on his. And then when means increase, as he gets older, he becomes a captain or you know switches um, airframes or something like that, or just time, he makes more money. Now we'll convert her term insurance over to a whole life policy. But at least now she's covered and she's locked in her health for the next 20 yes. years yep. that we can. So if you want to learn more about that convertible term, go to episode 18. That's a, a full episode on how powerful and, and how valuable convertible term insurance is. So we don't, we don't downplay term insurance. Mike. No, not at all. It has, it has its use, right? Yeah. And, you know, Dave and I are in the process of opening convertible term policies on ourselves. Um, you know, we own several, but it's, I like to have, I just like to have it in my, in my, in my kit bag, yeah. just ready to go at a moment's notice. Cause the conversion is quick into an, into a new whole life policy. Don't worry about the mechanics folks. It's quite simple. Yeah. Well, we take care of that for you. Yep. Very simple process. Yeah. So, all right. Any other final notes on this topic here before we call it a day? No, I don't, no, I don't think so. Again, you know, keep it, this is <clears throat> what I often say to people is this is, this is super simple. Um, don't try to overcomplicate it and don't set your premium so that it's manageable and meaningful. And, you know, in other words, start where you're at. Start where you're at, manageable and meaningful. If, yeah. If you cover those bases, it should be pretty easy to come up with a number and, and do it right from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just leave everybody with this. Um, we're coming up on, this is episode 93. We're coming up pretty close to a hundred episodes. So a hundred straight weeks of doing this without, without missing a beat. Um, we're trying to figure out what we should do for the hundredth episode. So if anybody has any ideas or recommendations or knows of any guests that maybe we could bring on, I mean, we've only had one guest so far. Um, and actually I'd like some feedback on that. Did you guys like the guests? Do you like having guests? So we bring that in every, every so often, just to get another perspective point of view. But if you have any ideas, please send us an email, throw it our way, send us a text message. If you, if you have our number, um, cause yeah, we want to plan something. That'll be cool. Maybe we could do it in person. Maybe, yeah. Maybe another guy named Paul. Maybe another guy named Paul. Yeah. So I, yeah, met a new Paul this, uh, this weekend who maybe we'll talk about on the next episode, but I think we may have him on a, on a future episode. Really cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. We like Paul's around here apparently. Yeah. Small but wise name. That's what it means. Small but wise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what it means. Seriously. Small but wise. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you're not small, dude. You're average. I'm, I'm right. I'm, I'm <laughs> like, so yeah, I weighed in. So I'm five, nine, right? 162. I mean, that is as average as one can get. So that's probably the, that's probably the correct BMI. For, yeah. It's probably for 21 height. or something or whatever. 
Yeah. Underwriter's dream. An underwriter's dream, except that cholesterol you got. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the whole cholesterol thing is a scam. Yeah. And, but that's what they go by. So I have to take pills. Otherwise, my cholesterol is like 300. <laughs> yeah. That's still get approved even... with it, but it's, you know, I'll get standard instead of. Yeah, you heard it here first. You can have high cholesterol and still get approved. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no doubt. Yeah. All right, man. Well, have a good week, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. And until then, control your capital. Or somebody else will. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. If you'd like to have a conversation with us to see how you can become your own banker, or if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to tackle on a future episode, please send us an email to David and Paul at theibcguys.com. And subscribe and leave us a review if you're on Apple. Follow and leave us a five-star review if you're on Spotify. And please share this with your friends. We'll see you next week.